I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Makita Brockman, psychoanalyst, professor, and author, here to discuss her newest book, Couple Found Slain, After a Family Murder. Her other books include An Unexplained Death, The True Story of a Body at the Belvedere, The Maximum Security Book Club, Reading Literature in a Men's Prison, and Phantoms of the Clinic, From Thought Transference to Projective Identification. For more, please check out her website, MikitaBrotman.com. That's M-I-K-I-T-A-B-R-O-T-T-M-A-N.com. You can also follow her at Makita Brotman on Instagram and at Brotman Makita at Twitter. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry from Chapart Books 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, chapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Vanessa 23 Carl. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A 23 C-A-R-L. Your support is so appreciated. Thank you so much to all of our Patreon patrons. We really appreciate your support and it helps us keep on going. You can visit the Rendering Unconscious website at renderingunconscious.org. On the left, you'll see menus that have all of our episodes listed chronologically, as well as another that has all of our episodes listed alphabetically by author's last name. That way you can easily find your favorite topics and authors. You can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net and follow me on Instagram and Twitter at rawsin underscore That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore at Instagram and Twitter. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. As with all episodes of Rendering Unconscious Podcast, there is a video of this episode up at YouTube. Just search for Trapart Films YouTube channel, that's T-R-A-P-A-R-T film at YouTube, or search for Vanessa Sinclair Rendering Unconscious Podcast. All right. So as I said, I'm ready to get into it with you. I love this book. All right. Let's get into it. Couple found slain. 
um i love how you started the book um and how i remember when i came down to baltimore and you were talking about this reading group that you were doing at the uh, prison and i love how that's how you came in contact with this man and now have this like entire book about this story so what would you like to discuss with about it first um I think the way that it starts is with the crime and there were like a lot of previous iterations of this book like I went through many versions before the final version and um, like it's partly kind of the editor who wanted the crime at the forefront because you know there is a market for true crime and it's it is kind of partly a true crime book you know I'm partly interested in true crime and, um, but Brian himself didn't like that. He liked earlier versions of the book because he didn't really want to have so much focus on the crime, which is which is kind of understandable because it's you know twenty seven years ago. He really wants to not focus on that and focus more on like he wanted it to be more about his ordeal, his kind of life in purgatory, which it is actually. It just doesn't start out that way. So yeah, it's partly true crime, but it's also partly like a, a kind of me telling Brian's story of being kind of stuck in this, in this purgatory of the um, of the forensic psych ward for, for twenty seven years, and he's still there. Yeah, and that's a good point too because uh, his life didn't start with the crime. You know, there's a lot that happened before that, and then there's been a lot even longer time since. Um, where he's been stuck in this hospital. Yeah, and most true crime is focused on the crime, um, and it has certain roles, like the victim and the perpetrator, and there's no gray area between those roles. It's like the victim cannot be the perpetrator, and there's no sense that actually those are kind of the same person at different points on the spectrum in their lifetime. Most perpetrators were victims to begin with, and also that... Um, and that most true crime ends with the you know, justice being done, but justice for one person is not necessarily justice for everyone. And most young men who commit terrible crimes are in their early twenties. And so it's like the beginning of their life. So they live the rest of their lives on in prisons or psychiatric hospitals. And they're kind of, they disappear from the picture. And in some ways that's appropriate because the focus is on the victim, but they go on living their lives and they change and they develop and they get jobs and marry. And even if they're still in prison, they still live, you know, they're still human, full human beings with, um, with, and even lives that are constrained as Brian's is in this book can be full of events, you know, interesting events. Yeah, exactly. A lot, a lot continues to happen. They continue to have relationships with different people like yeah. in the facility or that come into the facility from outside um yeah. and like i told you before we started recording i really love that this is written by your point of view as a psychologist and i i hope there's a whole field of true crime written by psychologists yeah, it's really compelling because i read a lot of like murder mystery books and you know i've read moving to sweet i've read like all of their they have tons of them i just go through them really quickly but it's always like from the point of view of a detective or a policeman, like brutal kind of 
policeman psychology or a journalist or something like that. Um, and I haven't come across any by psychologists. I'm sure there must be some others, but I really love it. And I love that there's so much nuance. And like you said, focus on the fact that, you know, people that commit crimes usually are really young in their teens or, or early 20s. And then it changes the course of their entire life. They usually were victims of abuse in some way. And like that, like the, this crime doesn't just happen out of nowhere. It was like after decades of abuse. Yeah. And I'm, I'm interested in talking to you about the psychology and the, and the psychology of the hospital, because, um, because, you know, it's something that we have in common. And that's something I really wanted to get into in the book, how, how much of a failure it is and how little is done for people in places like this. And there isn't an answer. I mean, it's not like an expose or saying this is terrible. This is what should be done because it's just, you know, there are so many people in this forensic system and so, you know, so little funding that the, the psychiatrists are really overworked. Um, there, you know, there, there's so many security procedures that have to be involved that most people tend to spend their times, you know, sitting around watching television or, or are just over medicated and um, and if if Brian is typical, then many of these people could easily live productive, functional lives on the outside. It's just that the, there isn't a system set up to deal with them, and um, and yet if they if they had access to different kinds of therapy or psychoanalysis, I think. Um, their lives could be very different, you know, if they could be, if a different approach could be taken, but it's so hard because of the enormous amounts of, you know, the drug companies and the funding and the medications and the DSM and all that. It's just a huge mess. No, it's so tied together in the U.S. I, I can speak to the U.S. system. It's like, the prison system and the hospital system and we're seeing the psychiatric system and the pharmaceutical system and they even include the food industry in there because like the fda that approves like pharmaceuticals a lot of people like they put pharmaceuticals in the animals that, that we eat cows and things like that and it's like all <laughs> it's all a huge racket <laughs> yeah. yeah and also like the credentialing and the dsm and the diagnostic system and like who's allowed to make diagnoses and what those diagnoses imply and like how they how they continue for the rest of your life you can never overcome them and the and and yeah and the um the training of psychiatry i mean all of that is tied in there too it's and if you trace it back none of these things were started out badly or corrupt it's just over time that you know they get bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more money gets involved and things accrue yeah, and, the, and like in medical school, like psychiatrists are taught this is the correct way to treat people. Like I have a friend, Todd Dean, who was on an early podcast episode, who's a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst. And that's what he talked about, like having to work through, because when you're trained, you listen to the authority, they teach you this is the right thing to do. You work by the DSM, you give these people these medications for these conditions, just like as if they were like physical medical conditions, you know, they're treating them just like this is a brain anomaly yeah. or chemical imbalance that you treat with these medications and as young they're also young and trained to do this um yeah. and then that's just the way they see or are taught that that was the that's the correct ethical way to work 
So he had to like work through all of that kind of indoctrination before he came to more psychoanalytic understanding of people. Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, I, I remember when I was like, when I was in training, they put real emphasis on diagnosis, right? Very, very early, mm-hmm. even in analytic training. And I remember um, having a patient who, um, I can't remember what I diagnosed her with, but I was told that I'd missed something very important, which was the fact that she didn't, she hadn't shaved her legs. And that was a sign that she'd like given up, given up trying to attract men. Like, so I failed because I didn't make a note of that. And I didn't include that. And like, that was a pathology that I should have noticed. And it's so old fashioned. and Yeah, I remember a supervisor asking me if my patient had her nails painted or not, or if it was like chipping or like not painted. And I was like, I have no idea. <laughs> I yeah. don't look at people's nails like that. I know. It's, it's like sometimes chip nails and ripped jeans are like the height of fashion. I mean, it could be very, very deliberate. Uh, yeah. And I also really love this point, though, that this, he was specifically, oh, we haven't even talked about it. His crime was, though, that he did murder his parents. Yeah. yeah. Um, and actually, Manya Stankola, in our book on violence and psychoanalysis, she, write, she wrote a paper about Adam Lanza, um, who killed all those little, like, kindergartners and Sandy Hook, um, and how he, he also killed his mother first. Um, and, you know, she wrote a kind of psychoanalytic understanding of all the abuse that kind of happened in that household and like the mentality of the parents and um, yeah. how he had been taken to treatment a lot of times, but like for some reason, was it, it wasn't really taken that seriously and his mom insisted on homeschooling him. So it was like, he was like trapped in this like bubble with his mother and like it seemed to her like he couldn't get out except for to like annihilate her and himself and like the world around him. Um, and which could be like a psychotic process, but again, like should sh- could be understood because of course, like in the media, that's never gonna, there's never gonna be a point of view of like, why did this kid who's also a young person do this, you know, heart- horrific act. Um, yeah, but it- and, when, and when they bring, like in those cases, whenever they bring a psychiatrist in, there's so much opprobrium on the part of the public and the media, like, oh, you're going to attribute it all to his, his mother and his upbringing and this is just coddling him and trying to get him out of prison and there's a you know psychiatrists when it comes to crime have such a a bad rap in the public that like to to consider any any the psychology of any criminal is seen as um soft soft hearted and irrelevant and in fact um par- the killing of one's parents parasite used to be known as the schizophrenic crime because among the schizophrenics who commit crime and more schizophrenics are victims of crime than commit crime but when they do commit crimes killing the parents is not unusual um and um when i was working on this book i um was in touch with this professor kathleen Hyder, who did one of the blurbs and she's written a book called understanding parasite um when sons and daughters kill parents and it's and she studied a lot of kids who kill their parents and it's usually, you know, the same. It's like after decades of abuse, the kid is usually acting on the kind of unspoken wishes of the rest of the siblings or of the surviving parent. They're acting out some kind of unspoken force that's been going on for a very long time. That, you know, it's almost like they're, um, they become a vehicle for the family itself. The way that one child sometimes 
acts out the parent the parents' wishes, and and the difference between um, a schizophrenic parasite and a, a an ordinary parasite like the Menendez murders is is usually that there's no like trigger. There doesn't seem to be a trigger. The parent is killed when they're you know going about their everyday business. It's not something happens. Um, it's like in this case, Brian's parent. He got up in the morning and his parents were his father was making breakfast and his mother was watching television and it was just, I mean, there was an internal trigger and it was the climax for Brian of, you know, decades of, well, years and years of mental illness. So in, in his case, there's no question that he was mentally ill and had been for a long time. And, and yet, you know, before he killed his parents, there was a situation where he was like walking around the house with a loaded gun, taking it into the shower with him. I mean, you have to ask like, what, what were the parents thinking? And, um, but I think that kind of neglect had gone on for a really long time. And, you know, it's interesting how the family becomes, I mean, the, the hospital becomes another system, like the family, another of these um, sort of dysfunctional systems where things that like an outsider would immediately see, oh my God, you're letting that happen? How can that happen? But if you're in the system, you're so used to it that you just don't see it. So I think it probably goes on in most families. What what goes on in the in the privacy of the home can be so dysfunctional to an outsider that you just take it for granted. I mean, people live in all kinds of different conditions because it's just like part of the system and you get so used to it. Um, so like as an outsider in the hospital, that perspective, I could see where things were just really messed up and dysfunctional. But I think to people who work there and even the patients themselves they were so used to it that they often didn't see these these the same, the same with prisons or any institution when you go in there as an outsider you see things that people who who take it for granted just don't don't see yeah and like you described like people are mostly just like watching this television that's like in a cage and they're over medicated and you know they don't really have any activities that they can do and they're just you know it feels like kind of like living zombies And that, and and especially that's a good thing to point out as well. Is like he he was declared like criminally insane or whatever they call it now, not suitable for court or whatever. <laughs> um, and so he ended up in a hospital. But then the, he goes through a, a whole issue uh, where there's no like sentence. There was never like sentence like to this many years. So there's no like endpoint. So there's just like this endless kind of treatment or hospital stay. That doesn't really have any course of treatment or an end in sight. Yeah, and and so it's a real confusion. Like we we say that in Maryland at least it's not not criminal responsible is the new not guilty by reason of insanity. So we're saying that this that someone is not responsible for their crime. Like in this case, Brian killed his parents, but we're saying that because of an illness, he's not responsible, and we there's a big fuss made about taking mental illness as seriously as physical illness which quite rightly it should be and we should get the same kind of insurance coverage and everything but then if we're going to say that someone like if someone had you know alzheimer's and killed someone or um or had a, a seizure and killed someone we, we wouldn't think that we wouldn't send them to prison we wouldn't see them as responsible, but people in Brian's situation where they have committed a murder but are seen as not responsible, 
because of the mental state are in this kind of limbo where people feel like there is a sense they have to be punished somehow. Like in the John Hinckley case, for example, he went to, he was released recently, but um, I think people think, well, oh, he goes to, you go to a hospital and that's it, you don't come out because you've done something that's really terrible. But what is a hospital for, if not to treat people and to get them better and release them? So these are not hospitals in the ordinary sense. They're more like warehouses or holding facilities. And I think, you know, asylum would be a better word. We don't really use that word anymore, but there's no sense that like, you know, you're being treated on a daily basis um, and you have the rights and privileges of a hospital patient. So it's this strange limbo between prison and hospital that's sort of a bit of both and, and neither. And people often think that um, it's better to, to be found, to be sent to a, a hospital, forensic hospital than to go to prison. But, and maybe it is in many cases, but in Brian's case, for him and others in the hospital, who'd experienced prison told me that they'd, they'd much rather be in prison. And in fact, sometimes, including Brian's, they would commit crimes to try and be sent to prison um, because, I mean, for various reasons. One is that if you have a prison sentence, even if it's life without parole, it's like, you know, there's no, there's, there isn't that torture of hope where you think if I, if I behave this way for this psychiatrist, if I take these medications, like there's this, endlessly delayed hope of release, which at least in prison, if you know that you're there for life, you you can relax and you know behave as you would normally behave. You don't have to keep jumping through these hoops and obeying rules. But if you had a, a limited sentence, even if it was 30 or 40 years, um, there's an end in sight. Whereas in the hospital, for many patients, there isn't an end in sight. And a couple of the patients who went, who committed crimes to get sent to prison told me that the other the other thing about prison is that you have a certain dignity like the problem one of the problems with the hospital is like they're judging you all the time so if you don't come to breakfast or if you don't want to exercise that's kind of noted in your file and it's seen as symptomatic and and you're not sure whether it's being held against you or not whereas in prison you're like anyone else you're a moral being with your own agency and your choices are seen as human choices and you have your own reasons for them and it's not held against you. Um, so it's, you know, it's really like, like something out of Kafka. And I'm, I was, I was surprised that there are people who, you know, who want who have been in prison and then back to the hospital and back to prison said that they preferred prison. It's, it's hard to believe. Yeah, but that makes sense that, like you said, if you skip breakfast or like people that didn't want to take their medication because they don't want to feel like a zombie um, yeah. and they're being non-compliant. So it's like you, you, you basically, basically it's like you have to do what you're told or else you're problematic, period. Yeah. And, and the medications are, I mean, that was one of the main reasons why Brian had so much trouble making any progress. In the first few years, he was, he seemed to be doing well, and he seems to be making progress. And there's a, I described this in the book, um, an A&E documentary called Untying the Straitjacket that features Brian, he's 26 in that documentary. And he's shown as like one of the, one of the most high functioning people in the hospital. And he's kind of articulate and he's shown exercising and 
they're talking about the process of release and it looks at that point as if he's on the way to getting out and yet everyone else in that show has been released long ago and Brian's still there and it's mm. partly because like he he saw what medication did to people and it it made him incontinent and impotent and every time he took it the same happened and there's a like he, he told me there's a period of years like 1997 to 2000 I slept on a chair like he can't remember those years because he was just medicated so heavily and it's very difficult to see what function it has apart from um, keeping the hospital population quiet and calm so that mm -hmm. there's no trouble so it's more like a kind of you know punishment than anything else yeah it's just to knock them out um, because even my dad was in the hospital in the fall of 2019 just because he had a physical illness and then he was sent to like a rehabilitation center afterwards to like get rehabilitation rehabilitated for a couple of weeks and that's what I found there they just wanted to knock them all out because I my dad was acting so weird and like I was like what's going on with him once he got to this rehab center and like I was like, isn't he supposed to be getting like rehab, getting better? <laughs> you know? And he just seemed so strange. And I finally just like, after like asking several times, I wanted to see his medication list. And they're like, oh, that doctor is not here. This is so, I felt like I was totally getting the runaround. And I was like, what's going on? And they had him on Oxycontin. And I was like, he didn't have surgery or anything. They just give it, gave it to him to like knock him out and make him sleep, you know? I, I was furious. So I feel like it's kind of become really common practice, unfortunately. Yeah, and it, it, it's just like knocking people on the head with a hammer to, to keep them quiet. And partly it's because, you know, that there are so many patients and there's such a shortage of staff and it's really badly paid. And so it's the, it's the security staff who kind of make most of the decisions, actually, who see the patients most often. And, um, and it's a kind of low prestige, you know, being a psychiatrist for the state is sort of a low prestige occupation when you could be making lots of money in private practice so um but and also yeah, seems I mean, to have a high turnaround like people like the doctors came through yeah. they didn't stay very long yeah 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 i mean brian's been there much longer than most most of the doctors and um and i think it's just that i mean i i've been in a psychiatric hospital myself a couple of times and i just the it was so useless and partly the uselessness was the kind of infantilizing that everyone has to be treated on the same level so instead of you know discussing books or writing or it was like you know talk about brushing your teeth or like it goes down to the very very most basic level so in the the groups that brian's in it's it's, you know, he's with these patients who are very, who are really de developmentally disabled. So it has to be at the kind of the most basic functional level. And so there's nothing that's therapeutic about it at all. Nothing stimulating. Right. There's nothing stimulating. Yeah. Yeah. And then you see he gets so frustrated after a period of time, he like tries to break out and it kind of felt like to me, like, kind of reaching the breaking point again like when maybe when the crime happened like where it's just like there's no way out of this i have to like break out it felt like you know yeah and and the problem is that you know brian was well behaved and 
compliant, which is the, the term they always use for, or directable for, um, for the first few years. And then he realized that he was going to have to take medication and that just destroyed him. And, and um, he realized, at one point he realized, well, anything, I, he wanted to die basically, and nothing could be worse than this. He, he wanted to try and, if he got shot by police, and kill that was better if he got sent to prison that was even better so like that to me seems like an appropriate human reaction to that situation and yet to the hospital it's like his his violence has re-emerged and it's like this pathological acting out it's another uh, resurfacing of his psychosis whereas to me it seems like anyone would behave like that i mean it's like it's just like a you know a, a dog biting back when it's kicked. I mean, you, it's, it seems to be a natural reaction, but if you have a history of violence, then there's nothing worse you can do than an act of violence that's held against you. And that, you know, his risk factor is always really high because it, it depends on things that happened in his childhood. Like, you know, he had psychiatric treatment at an early age. He had a history of violence at an early age. Those things are never going to go away or change. So his risk factor is always going to be high. So it's really... Um, you know, he's really trapped. And, and yeah, I think that the waves of violence happen in the hospital the same way as they do in the family. I mean, it's really kind of just like the family on a, on a, like a, a larger level and the tension, individual tension and ward tension develops to a certain point and then violence breaks out and then there's calm again. And, um, and there's, it's, it's like a, it's really kind of an interesting insight into how um, institutions, social institutions work and fail to work and, um, and the role of authority. And uh, I mean, people sometimes have been asking me like, what, what do you think, what's, why did you write this? What can we learn from this? What can we do? And I, I don't, I don't know. I don't have any answers. I just think it's, it's, I just wanted to tell Brian's story and to pay attention to individuals in this situation who, just have no kind of outlet and no voice for themselves. Yeah, it really raises awareness. And um, I think that that was a really good point that you made throughout the book too. It's like, he was very compliant and like calm for a long time for years. Um, and then it still wasn't seen as like progress because one, he didn't want to take medication. But it's like, why do you need medication if you're calm without it? And two, even when he was calm for a long time, all the psychiatrists and social workers would say that he was like good at tricking them into thinking that he wasn't psychotic when really he had all these psychotic processes happening underneath the surface. Yeah, and that was just, that's just baffling to me why they seemed so uh, reluctant to grant him any, any kind of agency at all or to say that maybe he's improved or like he wanted to practice religion and that was a great help to him but he wasn't he was he learned that you know religiosity was a symptom of schizophrenia and so he had to hide his his religion and not practice it because that was seen as uh, delusional which is so messed up really and yeah that any kind of improvement was was seen psychiatrists were very reluctant to say yes he's improved he seems to be getting better they all saw it as even more successful at hiding his psychosis 
And I think one of the reasons for that is that, well, one reason is that he's, he was, he's smart and he doesn't, like, he has dignity and he doesn't, he kind of finds it difficult after a while to go along with these jump through hoops and as, as would anyone. Um, but also it seems that once you have a diagnosis of schizophrenia, every new psychiatrist just copies down that diagnosis mm -hmm. and um, you're not, you're never cured of schizophrenia. You're, you know, you might be in remission for a while, but it might resurface. And even the patients who leave are told that it's kind of like diabetes. You have to take your medication. You have to make sure that there aren't recurring symptoms and be aware of things to look out for. And, but in Brian's case, it's like, because he was smart and because he was articulate and dignified and because he had this diagnosis of schizophrenia it was almost as though like the psychiatrist did if they had said that he was getting better or said that he was making progress then he would have foxed them and they weren't going to allow for that so they had to show that they saw through it was almost like a kind of competition you know of like who's going to win and i really got the sense with some psychiatrists just reading their reports that um that they they had problems their own let's say yeah and another thing that i that i feel like which you kind of allude to in this book and i also have read kind of in other books that i've read because i also like to read true crime and murder mysteries of all sorts um is that you know sometimes like with judges and lawyers and stuff they also they don't want to be seen as the one that's light or the one they don't also don't want to take responsibility like what if something did happen and they saw him as a human being and they wanted to give him another chance or like send him into a lighter kind of facility or you know something like that um if something did happen down the line they don't want to they don't want to take responsibility for that that possibility so it's like everyone's kind of passing the buck and just sticking to this to like kind of avoid a, a responsibility and that that's something that was is really scary actually that you know if when things go wrong in the hospital when brian is he feels that he's not been given a chance to of release and he feels that the psychiatrists are unfair to him and that he ought to be released eventually he gets the chance to go like what should be an external authority to go to court and like to have a judge and jury side which should be taking the authority out of the hospital's hands and putting it into someone else's hands and both times when that happens he does a great job he represents himself and I included a lot of the elements of the transcripts I wanted to put across that you know he really does a good job he makes good arguments he's coherent he's rational he knows what he's talking about and even when the jury seemed to be in his favor it's a hung jury both times but the judge always decides against them and sends them back to the hospital so the judiciary are really reluctant to to go against psychiatrists recommendations which kind of begs the question what, what's the point of having this going to court if you're just going to defer to the psychiatrist anyway i mean that's what he's trying to get away from the psychiatrist having authority um so yeah there's a failure to take responsibility but then the judges are not just judging legal questions that no, they're put they're, they're allowing the psychiatrist to have like moral and ethical authority uh, over 
over people, not just, you know, medical authority. Um, and there's something else I want to say about that too, that was really, this really bothers me about that. Um, I can't remember, it'll come back to me. But yeah, I mean, the, the legal system, I mean, the way that it intersects with the legal system is really, is really disturbing too, that there's no outlet, even if you go outside of the hospital. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Even in, in Brian's trial, when he represented himself in court for a hearing, a release hearing, like he does really well. He seems articulate and intelligent, which he is. But the psychiatrists always say, um, there's something under the surface that you public can't see, but we trained psychiatrists know, and it doesn't manifest itself in his words, and it doesn't manifest itself in his actions, but it's this disturbed thought content that you have to be really an expert to, to know what's actually going on inside his head and ordinary members of the public can't see it. And that's absurd because it really put, puts psychiatrists, you know, gives them this like mysticism. It makes psychiatry this kind of mystical activity that ordinary members of the public can't, can't see. Whereas in fact, you know, most um, mental illness is very obvious and there isn't some mysterious under the surface you know, if someone's thought content doesn't manifest itself in words and actions, then first of all, you don't know what it is. And secondly, so what? People can think about what they want as long as they're not breaking the law. Right, exactly. No, yeah, I was really disturbed by that as well. Um, and then, of course, it makes any outsider feel wary to, to go with what they're seeing because they think, oh, is there something I'm not seeing because I'm not a trained expert, you know? So it makes it really hard for, to get anyone on uh, the yeah, and I, side. And I noticed the men in, men in prison as well are very um, like frightened of like head shrinkers because they, they feel like, you know, that these people can kind of see behind, beneath the, the surface of their minds. And instead of seeing them ordinary flawed people, but the reason why they have there is that mysticism is because they have so much power and they have power to you know to keep you in prison or keep you in hospital or you know, send you to they have power of life and death sometimes yeah it's just so opposite of the way i see people <laughs> even as a psychologist psychoanalyst it's like no i'm learning from the person and what they're telling me in their process, <laughs> like this idea of like judging and analyzing and labeling, and then I can't imagine like medicating people. It's just a, such a different mentality of how to treat people. Yeah, and even the idea that like certain thoughts are dangerous or antisocial or is 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 very disturbing, and. It's, but it's hard to know, you know, I think Brian should be released. I don't think there's any, anything wrong with him, but there are plenty of people who've been released from psychiatric hospitals to commit further crimes. And so obviously people are very wary about, about failures, but is the alternative just to keep people medicated and locked up? And so right now he's still in the same position where there's just kind of no end in sight. Now? Well, it's, it's funny because he was recently sent to like a more lenient level where you can actually go out into the community with accompanied by a friend or family. 
but his sister lives in Ohio. She's the only contact he has, apart from me, and they won't let me take him. I'm banned from the hospital. <laughs> so, so he can't leave the hospital. I talked to him yesterday and he said he'd been put on a discharge ward, which is like, they'll, you know, at least another year before he gets out, but at least he's actually been on a discharge ward before. So on the one hand, it sounds great. It sounds like he's, you know, discharged, he's getting close to release. On the other hand, words in the hospital have very different meanings and, and it's part of the kind of torture for Brian that he, he gets so close to the finish line and then for no apparent reason is sent back to the beginning again. So it's very, you know, very reluctant to get hopeful on his behalf. Um, and I think that's the other thing that interested me a lot was the way that language is used in the hospital and the way that it, I mean, you, you've worked in forensic facilities and psychiatric hospitals, you know that the words take on a, a peculiar meaning of their own and it's, you have to kind of pick up the meaning of the most important word and it, language is all important because it becomes a question of knowing the word to the right word to say at the right time to the right person to mm -hmm. secure your release and you know words have a different meaning than they they do outside of the hospital and then too many schizophrenic patients they get very trapped in language anyway and language becomes this like system of a code um, that has its own implications so um, so there's like a, a trap on top of another trap to do to do with language so what a discharge ward is I'm not really sure but it's probably not what we think of as a discharge ward <laughs> Yeah, and it's a good point too, though. It's like people do have to learn kind of the right thing to say at the right time and how to behave, which is actually like you're basically wanting people to act in a certain way, perform in a certain way to get released. And if they can't do that or they decide not to do that or play that game, then if they do want to just be honest, <laughs> um, it's yeah. not going to work in their favor. So, like, what are we teaching people to do exactly? <laughs> yeah. I, when I was in the hospital, I remember like the psychiatrist asked, would ask me like, "Are you still depressed?" And I know, I know the answer is obviously to get out. I would, I would have to say no, I'm not depressed. But obviously, being in the hospital isn't hasn't helped me get less depressed. So I have to say, yes, I'm not. Or yes, I'm less depressed, which is a, a lie. But I also have to say it in a way that makes it seem as though I'm not faking it. So it's very difficult um, to say the right thing in the right way. And, um, and I think that a lot of people who are in Brian's situation and eventually get released may have men a mental illness from, from the years of being in the hospital. I mean, I think it might induce a certain amount of paranoia. So if, if Brian does have a residual mental illness, I think I don't think it's paranoid schizophrenia. I think it's from you know years of incarceration, which will kind of mess with anyone's brain. Right. Well, and also like you know the diagnosis of schizophrenia like came from like years of trauma and abuse. So it's like, isn't this at the end of the day just like chronic chronic trauma and abuse? You know that just manifests itself in these either paranoia or a blurred psychotic episode or 
Yeah, and that's, I mean, I also like reading true crime, but I often wish it were more nuanced and and not always taking the point of view of the prosecution and the police and and um, because real life is so much more interesting than that actually you know to see the victim and perpetrator as the same person or the same versions of the same person or different points on the same scale it makes things more complicated and more interesting I mean it's it's difficult to tell that narrative because it's circular and it goes against like the narrative trajectory but I'm much more interested in complex stories even if they don't follow even if they don't follow a usual traje trajectory and I'd, I'd I'd like to read more psychologically influenced true crime too yeah I would really love to so how many more books are you gonna write <laughs> hopefully many what are your other books your previous books just so we can mention that I want to make sure that I read all of your books well um the last one was an unexplained death and the one before that was called the maximum security book club and i'll mention um i have a book called um, phantoms of the clinic which is about psychoanalysis and the occult and the history of psychoanalysis and magic and um i think those are the only relevant ones but you can get my I website read that one i'm gonna have to get that and then we're gonna have, have to talk it? about it no oh, send you a copy i need to read that yeah, i can talk about like about freud and the occult in september i'll send you a copy it's it came out with karnak and um it's about how what began as thought transference is now called projective identification but it's it's missed like people don't know what it is and freud's work on fortune telling and telepathy and which is the most interesting part of Freud as far as I'm concerned dream work yeah there's so much I would like to have got into with with Brian about his his past and his family and how that contributed to his um his mental illness but the circumstances just don't allow for that so much of the therapy in the hospital is about like symptom reduction and what's happening with the medication and you know should we raise it or lower it it's basically and daily functioning right there's nothing there's no concern it seems about the interiority of the person which is also doesn't make sense with what they're saying because like you said it's all about symptom reduction but if someone's acting calm then they're like hiding the psychosis <laughs> which way which way is it <laughs> yeah it's like there's a real suspicion about what's going on inside people that they that their behavior doesn't manifest i mean not just in in the psychiatric system but in culture generally like people concealing that their language being deceptive and it's almost as though like if it's not on the surface it can't be trusted we only trust what we can what we can see and measure mm-hmm and this also the thing with it being parasite, like killing the parents, it, you know, the, the family institution, the nuclear family is like so sacred, you know, so sacred in the state. Um, it feels like a really like Christian ethic. I guess it's everywhere, but it's, it's like, it's like nobody can admit that maybe you have negative feelings about your parents 
and maybe parents have negative feelings about their children. It's like people would have to start examining the ambivalence in the parent-child relationship if they could accept that this could that this could happen, like the parent-child relationship could get to a point where there is parasite. But instead, this is like with everything, I feel like they just go, oh, is this, this individual person is messed up, end of story. And then nobody wants to look at like, the dynamics in that family or the dynamics in culture like with every mass shooting which is clearly like a total epidemic in the states i read there was like 18 in one week last week but it's like what like are all these individuals just sick individuals or is there something in the culture that is creating this problem yeah and i feel like if if we examine that like if we had a more nuanced sense of parent-child relationships then talked openly about the fact that parents can hate their children regret having children and if that were more if that were more open discussed i think things would be healthier but also and this would be healthier people wouldn't be so ready to have children i think people would think a lot a lot more carefully about having children and might decide not to and i think that would be a really good thing <laughs> you know like i think it's often a problem like the encourage people are just having children without really thinking about it. And I feel like if you really think about it, you don't do it because <laughs> it doesn't make sense. But we don't talk about that either. Yeah, I said that too. When I got to a certain age, I realized I was like, I think people have children before they realize that they could not have children. Because <laughs> yeah. if you like your, your body and your hormones and your relationship sort of box you into it, and if you if you get beyond that phase and see things clearly, you realize like, oh yeah, it's just a. It's just a I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Like it's just a myth. It's just it's just a delusion, and and yet people just keep on doing it. Yeah, no. Carl asked me. We got married when I was 39, and Carl asked me, like, do you want to have a kid? And I I had always been like, no, 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 it's not for me, not for me. And I was like, okay, this is stable. There's good like social systems in Sweden like it's got good education that's free you know like if I was going to have one this would be like an ideal thing to do it and I was like no thank you <laughs> like actually Carl's daughter had just like turned 18 you know and I was like you really want to start all over from the beginning yeah. like when we could just like hang out together and like travel and do other things and he's like yeah that sounds nice <laughs> yeah let's I just do that <laughs> to me a couple of years ago and I remember thinking like after I had the hysterectomy thinking like, thank God, like now it's definite. Now I definitely can't have it. Like before that I could always possibly get pregnant by accident, but now it's like, definitely not. Thank goodness. Done. Yeah, no, I'm, re I'm relieved. I sometimes joke that I feel like I won the game of life by <laughs> not having kids. <laughs> I know I never had any maternal feelings at all. I mean, I love my animals and my pets, but I've never liked children actually. No, I like, I like other people's kids. <laughs> I like hanging out with my friends' kids. And then I like yeah. giving them back. <laughs> and going home by myself. <laughs> the culture should have like a group of kids that they just like hand around occasionally for people to take in. Should hang out with the kids. <laughs> yeah, play games and then give them back. And like then the day you'll be over it. <laughs> Apologies to all those who have their children and love them, but... That's, that's how we feel and I actually feel very happy like you know as a woman it wasn't really an option for all of human history to not have kids so yeah. I think about like my mom had me when she was 34 which is a little late for her time 
and, and she had the one being me and her mom died in childbirth and then I think of like all the women before birth control that like basically just lived their entire lives from like the age of 14 on you know pregnant or have like having a kid making a kid taking care of kids and did that from like you know their teens until their death either from childbirth or you know they just got older had a disease or something else but it's like basically most of human history all women have done is have kids so I actually feel really like proud that I can like not do that and do something else yeah I mean it's really radical actually I'm and now that we're talking about it I'm surprised there aren't more matricides I'm surprised there are so few you know it's just like a breeding ground of of, um, anxiety and and the family in general so yeah I think finding your own path is the best way yeah families are complicated and parents are complicated and kids are complicated and actually I also brought this because um in the New York review of books recently i don't know if you saw this but they had an article called murder is my business where they talk about true crime um and they said that like some of the er the early true crime was actually handed out at public executions in britain in the 18th century that's how kind of how it started and they also described true crime as like the first reality the first reality entertainment so that was interesting yeah, I thought I didn't. I, I didn't like that article. Um, I was just arguing about someone about with it. Uh, it was. I mean, she has a kind of retro view of true crime, and I feel like there's a lot more interesting ways of looking at true crime than that. But um, but there are like more and more kind of nuanced and interesting true crime books coming out. I hope so. She also pointed out that like more people, more women were reading true crime, but not necessarily writing it, it didn't seem like, from the article. Yeah. Well, I hope well, it was more psychological, psychologically nuanced. Everything, really, not just true crime, but I just yeah. hope dialogue becomes more psychologically nuanced, period, which is basically why I started this podcast. <laughs> You know, something I've experienced is that, like, when I'm writing, and I'll, if I, if, if it's something is like too plausible and complicated, it doesn't. People aren't interested in it. Like, it has to, it has to be sort of nicely shaped, and it's the same with true crime. Like, it, ha- it has to have this like editing, commentary, narrative art, and it can't be just a big mess, which is what it actually is. Because that's hard to convey in a form of the culturally acceptable forms of narrative, so it's really hard to convey that mess and to and for people to be, you know, to give it five stars on a podcast or whatever, and to to fit into what we're expecting. So expectations have to have to change too, I think. Yeah, and maybe like, vehicles of delivery. Yeah, and I think we also were talking about it before we started recording, but you said it was. You were hoping, I told you how compelled I was um, reading this book. I read it in just a few days and I couldn't put it down. And you said you were glad to hear that because a lot of what you're writing about is like this like treacherous, like bureaucratic kind of process that can get really like boring. Um, But I, having worked in the hospital system, I really appreciated that I could tell like when you were pulling things from like files or 
or interviews or something, you could really tell that you were writing from like the details of like what was happening in the hospital and, and in the courtroom and that sort of thing. Um, and I really liked hearing all of that. And you wrote it in a really interesting and compelling way. Good. Um, I'm trying to like get it, get book, write books that are that sell and are popular, but also are interesting to write for me and, and I don't, and without like pandering or making things more palatable. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's a tightrope, but I'm, I'm really in, I enjoy writing this and I hope to write lots more. Yeah. And so we'll link also to the previous time that you were on the podcast um, and you talked about your last book so that people can check that out too. Is there anything else you wanted to mention before we wrap up? I don't think so. I'm, I'm really enjoying your show now so, and, and your, your podcast, but I like watching too. I like seeing what people look like. Yeah. I, I like seeing the conversations too. And a lot of people have said that they like that. That's why I started putting, putting them together that way. Um, it's nice and if you haven't seen Ingo Lambrecht yet uh, he talks about exactly that like if you if you talk about uh, projective identification then it's okay but if you talk about telepathy or thought transference then it's like no 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 oh I, I watched a bit of it I'll have to I'll have to finish it yeah he mentioned that you would love him he, you, you two would love each other I'm gonna have to somehow some future conference <laughs> somehow you two will have to be in the same room <laughs> or a virtual you. room <laughs> yeah i'll send you the book uh, i would love that great well we can stop there then all right well it was nice to talk to you and see you absolutely thank you for listening to rendering unconscious You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Makita Brotman. For more, please visit her website, makitabrotman.com. You can also check out her Twitter at BrotmanMakita and her Instagram at Makita Brotman. That's M-I-K-I-T-A-B-R-O-T-T-M-A-N. You can also listen to our previous discussion at Rendering Unconscious Podcast, episode number 27, with Makita Brotman, author and psychoanalyst. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, available from Tripart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. For more information, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, and sign up for my newsletter on the contact page to stay abreast of all upcoming events. You can also visit the Rendering Unconscious main website, renderingunconscious.org. And follow me at Instagram and Twitter at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. Thank you so much for listening to Rendering Unconscious podcast and for your support. You can support the podcast at our Patreon. That's patreon.com 
forward slash Vanessa23Caro. Your support is so appreciated. Thank you so much to all of our Patreon patrons. And now, another big storm tonight. From the album, The Pathways of the Heart, for Jess. Available at Bandcamp. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Another big storm tonight. Yourself. The ego itself is a symptom and you didn't know where the hell that had come from a minute ago. But she kind of suspected there was an unmistakable rosy red flush by a megalomaniac consumed Dracula's powdered gag. But she didn't want to draw too much attention to herself. She about Ben's last days and to enjoy cocoa and a platter of ices have sent it as a punishment because the victim, the events of life and the world take place in himself, yet if he reflects, he, and I can tell you that there is a sweetness in that, the twigs of the cedar tree would be brought to land, planted like a willow by abundant water, would told me so I collected the branches and bundled. Caves of Sorcerers, the American Beginnings. Identification may also easily tempt the analyst to take the mothers. That exteroceptive, proprioceptive, and interoceptive sensations intellectuals, the literary avant-garde and book shunning, and nature as such as the perfect allegorical platform, experienced and are relieved when fuller integration is achieved. Complete and permanent integration is in my view never possible. The deeper and more complex the difficulties we are analyzing, the two of the Norwegian guys sit with us while another pair takes seats at. Smoke like red blood rising into the heavens, and they knew. And sleepy, soulful eyes, he is draped beautiful, richly covered fabrics. Time, in such recent history of there, it were to your, we are quite yet, and how much even thus young then has found effect as a creature upon the unparalleled Destroys that alone would berate him. Cities, his state, his laws, his.
while the living can figure secret, myself falling into a kind of hypnotic state, my eyes halfway closed, the writings of Melanie Klein, the birth of tragedy, visual arts, do you have a term for poetry inspired by music, claim that there aren't really any new, is the assiduous veiling during the performance of the tragedy of the intrinsically Dionysian effect, which, however, is so powerful that it place and give in to the urge immediately to alleviate his child. The, I don't, she replied, I leave that to you, Black, but I've never really seen anything like it. If the dioramas of cinematic expectation in the half-dark, when we are asleep, we oftentimes have one eye open and are able to. Some of the less popular or prominent pieces, how the hell do you explain? Consisting of an odd texture or consisting and consumption of human meat seems to have been this occasional casualness in the matter of the identification or the fantasy of what we imagine ourselves and or mothers to perceive. We pass through the doorway, we dispose of our shoes, and find that the scene, together with the action, was fundamentally and thought of as only as a vision. That the only reality is just the then why couldn't we choose to adjust that experience? Those which of itself generates the vision and celebrates it with the symbolism of dancing, music, and speech. In the vision, this belongs to one of those charred bodies and was close to those fires. Must live into a future without illusion, especially the 